What's the clearest memory you've got of something that, you know, was a while ago? I mean, I've got a few flash moments that come to mind right away. Visiting a winemaker in the hills of Cyprus on that very first holiday that I took with Marcella. Breaking up with a girlfriend before Marcella um, in a cafe in Canberra. A Christmas spent having a picnic with my family in Tidman Villa during a hot, hot summer. You know, these memories flash bright, but the truth is I remember more, I guess, a feeling or a, a visceral experience. I don't really remember the details. And honestly, the details I do remember, I'm not totally sure of. I mean, that winemaker, am I remembering him or am I actually just remembering the photograph that I think I took of him? But what if you remembered all the details, if you remembered everything perfectly? Not just that you had a birthday party when you were eight, but that there were 12 presents and you only liked three of them and you knew exactly what those three were and who gave them to you and how you played with them and where they inevitably ended up. I mean, would that be amazing or would that be onerous? My memory only gets dodgier (laughs) day by day as time ticks on. And sometimes I worry about that. And sometimes I remember that the forgetting is one of the great adaptive strategies of life. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Today's guest, Dr. Scott Small, is a brain mechanic. He is a physician who treats pathological memory disorders like Alzheimer's, and he helps people manage that terrible disease. He's also an author who celebrates the benefits of forgetting. And that's the title of his book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. Scott remains grounded in the deeper purpose of being a doctor. There is something about not just being a a drug pusher as a physician, but being a true physician, by which I mean uh, compassionately talking with patients, educating them, helping them manage their fears. Uh, And that's the part of Alzheimer's uh, management, which I actually didn't expect. I, I was sort of hardcore basic science. I want to understand mechanisms of memory. Uh, and so there's, 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 there's the joy of that, but ultimately that's not sufficient. The real joy will come when we can really uh, intervene meaningfully. You know, over time, science has definitely made strides towards this. So now we're able to diagnose Alzheimer's earlier. But honestly, this creates its own ethical dilemmas. How do you begin a conversation with someone who has just started showing the first signs? For them, often the worry is uh, the end stages of Alzheimer's disease. And that's that's appropriate because that's what the press typically focuses on. They like the drama of the end stages of any chronically progressive disease. Alzheimer's at its end stages is horrible. There's nothing uh, to countervail that fear. But what I can tell them in good faith is that Alzheimer's, if you do have it now, if it's just causing mild forgetfulness, that's years, if not decades away. Uh, And so try to engage the now. And I do remind people that disorders like diabetes are chronically progressive. Their end stages could be horrible, but many people could live with diabetes. So that's what I try to very softly uh, encourage them to consider without committing the sin of minimizing a disorder. Now, Alzheimer's is generally well known to the public. You know that name. I confess, I've only got a limited understanding of it. 
So I asked Scott what we tend to get wrong about this disease. Well, uh, one is that, that, that idea I already mentioned, that mm. someone who's diagnosed with early stages of Alzheimer's thinks immediately, oh my God, my life is over. Yeah. This is not a aggressive cancer, which is an appropriate response. Mm. But the other thing, and if you don't mind me uh, mentioning the book, Michael, in the book, oh, I do talk about how my patients have taught me a lot, and I dedicate my, this book to them. One of the things they've taught me is that we live in an information-rich world. We mm. all uh, obsess over trying to retain and recall information. And my patients, particularly in the early stages of disease who um, of Alzheimer's, who actually lose that ability, they have taught me that it's actually not the end of the world. Right. They still love and laugh. They still they still go to art. They uh, you know enjoy art and yeah. reading and the sciences. They enjoy their families. So I think the the, the, the deep metaphysical lesson they've taught me is that we over-index information. <laughs> right. I, I do, Scott. Sometimes think about. You know, this concept of the beginner's mind and the power of coming to something with a beginner's mind and whether if I mean, am I just being kind of naive or kind of I don't know, rose tinted glasses and thinking that there's happiness in coming to things with that beginner's mind? I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, when you say beginner's mind, can you help me understand? Yeah, I, I think I heard it in the concept of like, like Zen philosophy, which is, you know, part of wisdom is being able to see things afresh right. without the layer of history or expectation or right, future right. hopes. And there's kind of this, this beginner's mind is the, the seed for current wisdom. Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely, yeah, that's really, very interesting. And not surprisingly, uh, Nietzsche also engaged in that, the rebirth idea, mm. that, that the ultimate uh, goal of, all, of the super man is to become a child again and right. a child's mind so i i completely see that wisdom i'm not sure i do i've read a little bit of buddhist yeah. text, not enough to to opine about that but if i might riff on that mm. i do think that one of the things that forgetting allows us to do is to maintain a playful mind and so right. i use a lot of metaphors in the in the book yeah but if you think of memory uh, as a consolidation, that's the term we use. If you say co consolidation is concrete consolidating, imagine a mind that has memories that are stapled with steel, that are just concrete mm -hmm. with information. That, and there's a great chapter, I think, in the book where I discussed <laughs> with, with, with Jasper Johns, a, a, yes. an American artist, on the issue of creativity. The, the, the psychology of creativity have taught us that you have to keep your mind loose and playful. And that looseness and playfulness is exactly what a child's mind has, and it's yeah. often what we lose. So uh, that that's my take on the idea of a beginner's mind. That's really interesting. You know, I, I remember reading in the book, you know, the heart of memory is the forming of associations between separate stimuli. And part of what you're pointing to is that can become, let's call it ossified, concretized. Yes. Um, and creativity and playfulness and new ways of seeing the world is when you're forming different associations, which... Um, which will happen if those concretized ones aren't quite as firm. Right. That, that, that was really, you know, when I, when I paid the book a compliment, I'm not complimenting myself, God forbid. I'm complimenting the fact that this was a new field for me because I'm an yeah. Alzheimer's guy. And in doing the research, I spent a lot of time interviewing and reading. It was, that was a real true punchline. And that is that, you, 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 first of all, you need the information there. So it's not as if the eureka yeah. moment comes without information. So you... Um, studies that have poured over the introspection 
of artists, the most successful creative mm. types, not just artists, but creative types in the sciences, all of all walks of life, they say two things. You need to immerse your brain with information. And so yeah. that immersion is important, but you have to make sure that that information is not ossified in mm. its networks. It has to stay vibrant, loose, creative. Uh, and so the term I use in the book is that you have to unmoor your mind from memories right. in order to, to, to have creative flights of fancy. Yeah, there's a great research that says if you're a Nobel Prize winner in the sciences, you are much, much more likely to have an outside interest, <laughs> you know, That's musical right. instrument, Dungeons and Dragons, whatever it is. And there's a there's just a direct correlation and right. probably causation between that finding, which I think is fascinating. That's exactly right, Michael. You know, everyone always wants to know the, the, the recipe of genius. It's not <laughs> IQ. It's actually not memory. It's right. creativity. And right. one way of cr to define creativity is the synthetic mind. A, a synthetic mind is a mind that can uh, combine multiple elements. That mm. ability requires looseness of elements. Otherwise, you can't have that magic of the alchemy of combinatorials. And in fact, the great Nobel Prize winners all have this synthetic mind. Yeah. And that's why they're interested, not just technically in their one uh, confined field, but they tend to magpie-like jump from fields to fields. I think that's a unifying feature. You're right. So speaking of geniuses, tell us about what you're going to be reading from today. Yes, you're right. Borges is, I think you already alluded to one of your faves, one mm. of mine. He is clearly a genius and he's genius. He's a genius in many ways. I know people often talk about his genius as a literary genius, the, the, the birth of metafiction, of, of postmodernism, yeah. perhaps, of irony. All that is true, and I love all that about him. But to me, and the reason I'm reading this is because what he illustrates is something that I know is true, and that is that, um, that artistic minds often intuit the way our brains work before scientists. And there are many right. examples of this. And this story, a short story, in his collection of fictions, uh, illustrates that because he antedated what then became clear only decades later in, in the sciences. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love the story. Um, so Scott, uh, reading from, how do you pronounce it, the first name of the story, Funes, the Memorial? I, 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 pronounce, I pronounce it Funes the Memorious. Uh, I'm not sure I'm right. And hopefully one of your listeners can Perfect. correct me or us. If there's an Argentinian listening in, maybe you can correct our, our pronunciation. But Scott, over to you. I'm excited to hear this. Yes. And I will. Um, so if, if, it's, if it's OK, so this is a very short story. Uh, what I'd like to do is to begin with the opening paragraph and then move to one of the later paragraphs. So it's really? not going to yeah. be a continual read, if that's okay, Mike. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so just to set the stage here, so this is presumably about a um, an urbanite who lives in um, in in Buenos Aires with a, presumably a wealthy family. His father takes him over the border to Uruguay, where presumably they have a cattle farm. Mm. Uh, and uh, the protagonist... Uh, is describing uh, a person he meets, a cowboy essentially, uh, called Funus, um, Irenio Funerus, and he is described as the Memoria. So I'm, I'm going to open with the opening paragraph because it is such a perfect setup mm. for the rest of the, I mean, it's incredible in a short story to cover so much. So uh, here I go. I remember him. I scarcely have the right to use this ghostly verb. Only one man on earth deserved the right, and he is dead. 
I remember him with the dark passion flower in his hand, looking at it as no one has ever looked at such a flower, though they might look from the twilight of day until the twilight of night for a whole life long. I remember him, his face immobile and Indian-like and singularly remote behind his cigarette. I remember him, I believe, the strong, delicate fingers of the plainsman who can braid leather. I remember near those hands a vessel in which to make mate tea bearing the arms of the Banda Oriental. I remember in the window of the house a yellow rush mat and beyond a vaguely marshy landscape. I remember clearly his voice, the deliberate, resentful, nasal voice of the old Eastern Shore man without the Italianate syllables of today. So then uh, he's introducing a lot here, not just the character, but the whole concept of memory. And um, then he describes how he first met him, who is Funes. Uh, he goes to this town uh, in Uruguay, the, the cattle town, and um, he's introduced to Funes once through his cousin. And Funes has these peculiar uh, personality traits. He, he can list names. He always knows what time of day it is without looking at his watch. And then, you know, that's his first meeting. And then he comes back one summer, uh, the protagonist, and he hears that Funes had a terrible uh, accident where he was th thrown from his horse and he wakes up crippled. That's the term used in the, in the, in the short story, but with this incredible memory. And so what I'd like to now describe is how the protagonist describes um, his photographic memory. We, in a glance, perceive three wine glasses on the table. Funus saw all the shoots, clusters, and grapes of the vine. He remembered the shapes of the clouds in the south at dawn on the 30th of April of 1882, and he can compare them in his recollections with the marbled grain in the design of a leather-bound book, which he had seen only once, and with the lines in the spray which an oar raised in the Rio Grande on the eve of the battle of the Quimpraco. These recollections were not simple. Each visual image was linked to muscular sensations, thermal sensations, etc. He can reconstruct all his dreams, all his fancies. Two or three times, he re reconstructed an entire day. He told me, I have, quote, I have more memories in myself alone than all mem men have had since the world was a world. And again, quote, my dreams are like your vigils. And again, towards the dawn, quote, my memory, sir, is like a garbage disposal. Uh, and then he goes on in a future paragraph, and uh, these are the last few paragraphs I'll read. In effect, Funus not only remembered every leaf on every tree of every wood, but every one of the times he perceived or imagined it. He determined to reduce all of his past experiences to some 70,000 recollections, which he would later define numerically. Two considerations dissuaded him. The thought that the task was interminable, and the thought that it was useless. He knew that at the hour of his death, he would scarcely have finished classifying even all the memories of his childhood. The projects I have indicated, and an infinite vocabulary for the natural series of numbers, and an unusable mental catalog of all the images of memory, 
are lacking in sense, but they reveal a certain stammering greatness. They allow us to make out dimly or to infer the dizzying world of Funes. He was, let us not forget, almost incapable of general platonic ideas. It was not only difficult for him to understand that the generic term dog embraced so many unlike specimens of different sizes and different forms, he was disturbed by the fact that a dog at 314 seen in profile should have been the same name as the dog at 315 seen from the front. His own face in the mirror, his own hands, surprised him on every occasion. Swift writes that the Emperor of Lilliput would discern the movement of the minute hand. Funus could continuously make out the tranquil advances of corruption, of caries, of fatigue. He noted the progress of death, of moisture. He was a solitary and lucid spectator of a multiform world which was instantaneously and almost intolerably exact. Babylon, London, and New York have overawed the imagination of men with their ferocious splendor. No one in those populous towers or upon those surging avenues have felt the heat and pressure of a reality as indefatigable as that which day and night converged upon the unfortunate Arinio in his humble South American farmhouse. It was very difficult for him to sleep. To sleep is to be abstracted from the world Funus on his back in his cot in the shadows imagined every crevice and every molding on the various houses which surrounded him. I repeat, the most important of his recollections were more minutely precise and more, li more lively than our perceptions of a physical pleasure or a physical torment. Toward the east, in a section which was not yet cut into blocks of homes, there were some new unknown houses. Funus imagined them black, compact, made of a singular obscurity, he would turn his face in this direction in order to sleep. He would also imagine himself at the bottom of a river, being rocked and annihilated by the current. Wow. I know. I mean, it's kind of the, <laughs> the overwhelm and the beauty and the terror of all of that. Right. I, I just reread it last night in anticipation of this, Michael. And I, I, I mean, there's so much here uh, at every level. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just, it truly is magic. Well, Not magic well, realism, because I don't think Borges was a magical realist. Some people no. think he was, but he was a magician. I, I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with both of that. I know a little bit about magical realism, and I, I wouldn't have called him that either. What, what, is the, what is the glory and the terror of that passage for you? Well, first, as a scientist who discovers the new science of forgetting, really, mm. the new science of forgetting, by which I mean the science that has emerged in the last 10 years, as I said at the get-go, Borges intuited everything. Right. <laughs> so the, on the issue of scientific uh, perspicaciousness um, through a literary mind, it's, it's what I think metaphysics, I think literature and, si and art is really the metaphysics to what we do which is the physics of the mind. Right, right. Uh, and he really was a metaphysician of the mind, and this illustrates it. The interesting thing, if I can go, uh, if I can continue along that vein, sure. is that 10 years later, 
Leo Connor introduces a term. Leo Connor is the, is the father of child psychiatry. He's a psychiatrist at the time at Johns Hopkins, and he has an active practice, and he publishes two back-to-back papers in the 1950s, 10 years after this short story was written, where he describes autism, a new mm. term, and he describes it as a disorder where one can't uh, see the whole from the parts. Mm-hmm. And if you read the case studies, he is describing Funus in many ways, particularly the early Funus. And right. I would love if any of your listeners have any idea if uh, Connor, who actually was a literary doctor, read uh, Borges, because he might have, but right. I have no indication of it. But it, that's what really leads in many ways to uh, the insight on the clinical implications of the mm-hmm. science of forgetting. So I'll maybe stop there, take a breather. Obviously, there's a lot more here, <laughs> which you as a, as, a, as a true literary expert can go on yeah. about uh, uh, the, the quality of the writing, starting that first opening paragraph by saying, I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember. And, yeah. and, and then he goes into details of things which he clearly could not remember. That's right. Borges, the ironist. And I just really <laughs> love that. <laughs> yeah. So Scott, one of the, you know, we talked about this a little earlier, which is the anxiety that can come to us if we feel that we're forgetting things. Um, but in, in Borges' story, it feels like forgetting is a, is a freedom. I'm, I'm wondering, and this kind of gets to the heart of your new book, you know, what is the freedom that lies in forgetting? Yeah, there's a lot of, it's a, it's a good word, freedom. It's, a, it's an emancipation um, uh, because in many ways, uh, and I think I do use the term, we can be imprisoned with pain. And mem- mm-hmm. we, I'm sorry, we can be imprisoned with memories of our pains or of our pasts. And so freedom, emancipation, liberation <laughs> from the tyranny of memory <laughs> is not a bad way to, to maybe encapsulate the, the part of the book. I should, I should quickly say, if I may, that, you know, I, I, this was not meant to be a, f- a feel good book, you know, celebrate your foibles, celebrate your forgetting. There's mm-hmm. some subtext there. I, I approach this because I was intrigued by the new science of forgetting. So the new science of forgetting basically says that our neurons, our brain cells, have two separate mechanisms, one that governs memory, the other that governs forgetting. That, you know, the implication, the, the seductive uh, implication of that is, well, if Mother Nature granted us with the mechanism of forgetting, <laughs> it must be beneficial. Right. That's not necessarily true. Mother Nature granted us with an appendix. That is not terribly right. <laughs> um, And there are examples where it can actually backfire. But once I had that and I accepted that as scientifically rigorous, because as much as I like to read literature, I am a mm. scientist first. I need the rigor I require. Then I pose the question, is it really beneficial or is it just a vestigial holdover like an appendix? And ultimately, right. as you know, we catch, evolution catches up with our information-laden world, will we get rid of this forgetting that we're all complaining about? And so I talk about the neurology, the psychology, even the philosophy uh, of insight in those different fields that does support the conclusion that having forgetting and balance with memory is mm. beneficial. So on the issue of emancipation, freedom, the easiest example and the easiest chapter to articulate, although it was the hardest for me to write, was on what I think everyone intuitively knows. It, it, you have to forgive. You have to forget to forgive. Right. You, you have to let go, right? Uh, amnesty. Amnesty literally means 
Amnesia. Forget amnesia, it. Amnesia, yeah. Right. I've never made that connection before. Yeah, yeah, neither did I actually. Yeah. It's strange that I wouldn't have. So all this ability to let go and, you know, marital therapists have told me, because I know mm. that I'm working on Alzheimer drugs, they say, well, if you develop a forgetting drug, call me. <laughs> my practice would thrive. So I think we all know that when it comes to emotional memories, mm. we need to forget, let go. Um, you know, all these um, colloquial terms that are basically uh, code for forgetting. Letting go is forgetting. I, I, I think the other parts are more unexpected and interesting. So the issue of Borges's insight that we need to forget to abstract, to generalize, mm-hmm. that is a, a little bit, that, that, that's a little bit less obvious. And that took a little bit more work in the book, hopefully rendered readable. Um, other aspects of the benefit of forgetting are for creativity. Really, yeah. really interesting. And the most ambitious chapter, um, which I actually enjoyed uh, writing, I hope some readers will enjoy uh, reading, is how uh, forgetting and balance with memory helps us to be better citizens of the world, helps us with our ethics and morality. Yeah. And that was the unexpected uh, last chapter. <laughs> Scott, I mean, I like, I love this idea that you're presenting to us, which is around how do we find the balance between remembering and forgetting for a happy life and an ethical life in some ways. How, how do you actively forget? Hmm. It's, it's such a great question. I've been asked that a number of times. And it's kind of strange that because I'm a, I'm a, as I describe myself in the book, I'm a brain mechanic. That's what Mm -hmm. I try to find what's broken and then fix it, right? If I can do it or not, as we talked at the beginning, that's a separate goal, but that is a separate question, but that is my goal. So if I'm saying forgetting is beneficial, how do you induce it? So I could say yet to speak to any uh, of the couple therapists out there, there is no pure memory drug, a forgetting drug, a drug that enhances forgetting. However, nature has given us mechanisms to induce forgetting. So sleep, it turns out one of the reasons for sleep is to forget. And I talk mm. about that and that, that's why we're most creative after a good night's sleep. There are natural drugs or chemicals. So yeah. oxytocin, something that was first found in association um, with, uh, with, with, with pregnancy and, uh, right. and, and maternity has now shown to be released in all of our brains uh, as we socially and physically hook up, quote, quote unquote. And that mm-hmm. oxytocin, what it does <clears throat> is it temporarily turns, da- turns down our fear memories. And if you think right. about it, we need to turn right. down our fear memories to open our minds to, to social interaction. So there are ways of doing it. And then finally, Michael, I hope I'm not too long-winded here. I know this is great, Scott. There, there, are, there are drugs, <laughs> recreational drugs, which I cannot as a doctor uh, recommend, but right. for anyone who's tried MDMA or ecstasy and you mm-hmm. felt the blissness and that's why ecstasy is called ecstasy. Yeah. Uh, that is, that bliss is caused by, uh, your temporary forgetting of your fears, uh, and your anxieties and your ability to really open up your heart and mind. So I think we've all experienced forgetting. Yeah. I think if you're asking, can I prescribe a pill legally? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> right. Well, look at the other side of that. Is is there a memory that is precious to you? And how do you maintain it? Hmm. 
That's a that's a great, great question. And yes. And so, you know, I think that's a great opportunity for me, Michael, to emphasize that I'm not saying it's all about forgetting, forget your memory. Right. Right. The balance of both memory is important, critically important. And, you know, the conventional view is right. We need our memories to be ourselves. You know, all the literature of that and the philosophy and psychology of that is spot on. I'm just the, the point really, as you say, is the balance between the two. So now back to your question. I do dedicate the book to two memories. Uh, I dedicate it to my mother uh, who had Mm -hmm. passed away in her memory, and I definitely would never want to forget her. And I'm lucky enough to be married for over 25 years, uh, and I dedicate the book to Alexis England, my my wife, uh, for a lifetime of memories that I hope never to forget. Well, some of them, some of the memories I hope to forget, but on balance. (laughs) Yeah, I've been been married for 25 years too, and I I saw an anniversary card that made me laugh, which was like, thank you for 20 amazing years, three so-so years and two terrible years. I'm like, yeah, that feels about right. I like that. That's very good. Right. So, I mean, knowing how actually not that reliable our memories are, how how um, you know our memories don't kind of get frozen on a on a pane of glass and maintain they they warp and they change. Uh, how do you like if you think of your mum, you know, how do you sustain your memory of your mother? So that's a really that's the, I I love that question because there's the kind of brain mechanics answer and then there's the metaphysician's answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't pretend to be the the, the the second, although I dabble in that. <laughs> <laughs> so we I was just talking to some friends who have who are younger than my wife and I, and they 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 grew up they're in their twenties they grew up with perfect documentation of their parents. They have, Mm. you know, Instagram, they have movies, they have video, they have audio. My wife and I have pictures. We have occasional videos, grainy videos where that, Mm. oh, but we don't have a lot of audio. So neither of us remember the voices of our mothers. My, my, Mm. my, my wife's mother, um, had a, had a, had a wonderful, I met her. She had a wonderful Southern accent. My, my mother was Hungarian and had a very thick and sort of funny right. Hungarian accent. And we were talking about that. And it's at some level, I think, and I do talk about in the, about, about that a little bit in the book, you know, our memories are not, and should not be a museum of natural history. It really should right. be a museum of modern art. And mm. uh, in that case, if you really have a catalog, an actual external hard drive of every moment in your life, which these kids growing up will have, right, with Instagram right. every day, I, I think on the issue of fidelity, there'll be no question about what your mother's voice sounded like or right. who that person you first dated, who broke up with who, because it'll be documented. <laughs> but at, right. at, at the metaphysical level, I worry that it's going to take away from the magic of our minds and really uh, creating art out of our memories. And so I think there's a balance there. Of course, you want to be faithful to your memories. But on the other hand, I worry about it being too concretized, back to that word, yeah. with uh, external documentation. Did that make sense at all, Michael? Well, it did. <laughs> um, I mean, there's something about the the stories we weave are the people who we become. You know, there's a great quote from Mm, a poet Muriel, somebody who says, you know, the, the universe is not made up of at, made up of atoms; it's made up of stories. Right. And uh, you know, you could look at the the documentation on the hard drive as atoms, 
and you can look at the memories as stories. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm sure since this is a literary podcast, I'll, I'll <laughs> probably get uh, hate mail on the next thing I'll say. But people often ask me which which you know literary luminaries are the best on memory. People often go to Proust. In my yeah. mind, it's Nabokov because Proust actually uh-huh. implied that it was the Adams. It was a hard drive. Right. He, in fact, describes the pop-up book. You know, the right. middle end caused the pop-up book of everything, and you can just observe it from all angles, and it's factually true. Whereas Nabokov in Speak Memory is brilliant on the point that he had this narrative of where he grew up, and I think it was St. Petersburg at the time, and he went back finally 50 years later, and he had this wistful memory. He found the house. He was just going on and on about, oh, yes, I remember exactly my mother, and, and then... <laughs> A, a, a an older person walks by and say, uh, by the way, that wasn't your house. It was the one across the street. Right. And I think that is perfect. You don't really want to necessarily uh, pop the memory bubble. And um, we don't have time for this, Michael, but I don't know if you like to go to um, uh, reunions. School uh-uh. reunions carry with it that danger of the disappointment of the truth. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that phrase, carries the disappointment of the truth. I, I was back in my hometown where I grew up just a few months ago, and really for the first time in in 35 years, I saw people I went to high school and university with. And, you know, it was a really interesting mix around what the gap between my expectations which is on the one hand, they haven't changed at all. I mean, I've changed, I've changed utterly in 35 years, but I'm assuming that they haven't changed at all. And so I won't like them because I didn't like them much at high school. And then I'm like, oh, you have changed. You've turned into a 53-year-old man like I have. And then also going, yeah, but actually, I still don't like you that much. <laughs> so it, was a, it, was a, it was confusing to have that kind of yeah, confrontation yeah. between memories and reality. Right. Like that. And that's sort of a, you know, a slightly, and I'm completely with you on this, a, sl- a slightly snarky reason for not to be on Facebook, because if I didn't like you in <laughs> right. old school, why would I like you now? Right. But, but on the, even on the beautiful memories, I think yeah. the beautiful memories should be preserved in our, in our museum of, art, not in our museums of natural history, because I think the beautiful memories run there. You know, if I was, we were talking about this back to our voices of our mother, you know, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the voices of our mothers? Well, maybe it wouldn't be, maybe it would provoke other stuff. So sometimes the, um, the sepia toned, the wistful sentimentality mm. of memory is not a bad thing. Although I do have a chapter that rails against nostalgia. So I'm, I'm sort of speaking from both sides <laughs> of my mouth here. Can you tell us about how forgetting helps us be better citizens? You mentioned, you alluded to that before, and it's a really interesting provocative stand. Yeah. So it's really interesting that if the point of the book is how memory and forgetting needs need to work in unison to strike the perfect balance to lead to live perfect personal lives mm. then there is something called communal memory then there is amnesty which is a societal form of forgetting mm-hmm. then it really le- le- leads to the question might that balance also ramify to our communities our culture our 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 our, 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 our place in the world and you know that was that's a, that's an interesting idea maybe for a chit chat in this wonderful program. It's something else to say that I'm going to write a chapter on it. So I had right. to really vet myself and make sure that it was again rigorous. And I was lucky enough to find this book where philosophers 
um, a, a, a book called The Ethics of Memory, written by Avishai Margalit, which is basically on the exactly this, the, the, the philosophical implications in an ethical and moral sense on memory and then forgetting. Right. And it then led me, uh, and again, Michael, um, if I can just insert right now, if I'm too off pissed, let me know. Um, <laughs> That's right. But, but I, I, uh, it, it then led me to what was really uh, an enjoyable read for me. So it, this book and this chapter in particular forced, forced me to be really, forced me to read the primary literature. We all talk about nostalgia. I was mm. able to get my hands on the original publication from 1688, which was a medical thesis wow. by Johannes Hoffer. He was a medical doctor in training in the University of Basel. And at the time, unfortunately no longer in my medical school, for example, uh, you had to submit a thesis to graduate. So right. his thesis was nostalgia. He, he made right. up this term. And it is really interesting to read it carefully with the eyes of a modern neurologist because he was basically arguing that nostalgia, this um, obsession with homeland memories, is a disorder of the brain. It's basically a seizure disorder where the areas of our brain that storm homeland are huh. active and, and, and seizing and causing us to be obsessed with uh, our memories of sweet home sweet home and um, to the point where we can't you know there's nothing necessarily wrong with that right but if it becomes all-consuming a moronic inferno as yeah. uh, Bello describes then what it does is it causes you not only to love your own country but it runs the risk of causing you to hate other countries to be mm. a, a xenophobe so I try to work that in uh, with my own experience on 9-11 here in New York, where there was yeah. a lot of difficulties with xenophobia on how we really needed to have communal forgetting to balance our memories. It's okay to remember. It's, so it's important to never forget, but never let uh, your forgetting, your memory to burn so hot that it makes you a xenophobe. There's, a, there's another five hours conversation right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but Scott, I've, look, I've really loved this conversation, this dance between memory and forgetting, between literature and science. So thank you. Um, as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation, do you think? Wow, now you're testing my memory because we covered so much <laughs> ground, Michael. Uh, and we said a lot, uh, hopefully partially coherently. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I could say something about forgetting. I could, I could say something about normal forgetting and something about pathological forgetting, meaning Alzheimer's. So I'll, I'll talk first yeah. about normal forgetting, which is the point of the book. I, I, I do think that there's some deep implications in me writing the book, and hopefully if readers read it, on this issue of let's try not to uh, imitate robots, artificial intelligence, our computer hard drives, our, um, our iPhones. Let's remember that in fact, we, perform, we, out, we still outperform them. I know there are some who say we won't in the future. I'm not a Luddite, I believe in technology, mm. but it's still remarkable that we can achieve so much more, particularly on issues of creativity. Yeah. And, and, and synthetic thinking. And that is a great example of where you need to celebrate your forgetting, uh, engage it. I'm not saying it's, it shouldn't be a nuisance when you misfire in a debate and you can't quite think of that right poet or the right statistic, but don't 
be so frustrated by it that you would like to delete it from your own hard drive. That right. would be a curse. On pathological forgetting, and I do have a uh, an epilogue on my work. Uh, and it, in fact, that's what the editors originally wanted me to write on. And that's Alzheimer's disease. Hopefully yeah. in the future, we'll be able to write it. I refuse to write that book until we have a better last chapter. Right. I do think uh, I'm not by nature an optimist, but when I started my career, I was a pessimist. I'm now cautiously optimistic that we're on the verge of making major breakthroughs into Alzheimer's because of the simple mechanics cliche. If you don't know what's broken, you can't fix it. And right. now, only in the last 10 years do we really understand what's fundamentally broken in Alzheimer's. So, you know, COVID has taught us if you can find the problem, biomedicine can really work miracles. So I'd like mm. to remain hopeful and optimistic without being all the optimist on the promise of future discoveries in Alzheimer's disease. This was such a great conversation. And I honestly, I loved how it ended. First, the move from pessimistic to cautiously optimistic. That's a movement really I'd, I'd wish on the world. Both the caution, because that's about staying grounded in reality, but also the optimism. So I think optimism is the recipe for forward movement, for taking on responsibility for making the world a better place. I think that's probably the second thing I loved about Scott's final words, not writing the final chapter until there's a better chapter to write, till there's a better last chapter, and being committed to write to co-create that chapter. Now that's something I definitely wish upon the world. If you're interested in Scott's book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering, well, available wherever you buy books. I'd encourage you to go to an independent bookstore because we need to support them as best we can. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Scott, then let me recommend a couple of other interviews to Bookmark. The chat with Ian Leslie about curiosity and conflict, that's wonderful. That digs into some of those key elements on how we shape our lives. And also the chat with John Zeratsky about the power of choosing what we focus on. Because, of course, what we focus on is often what we remember. Thanks for listening, by the way. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, and if you've listened to any of the interviews before, you know the drill. A request to give it a blurb, give it a score, pass it along if you really like this conversation. Because word of mouth is how we grow the podcast. And growing the podcast helps me invite amazing guests onto the podcast. Um, and if you'd like to join us at the Duke Humphreys, the free membership site where you can access the transcripts of the podcast, some additional interviews that I haven't released publicly, some other bonus downloads, where you'll find that at mbs.works and click on the podcast tab. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>